again, everybody. This is John Norris at Trading Perspectives. As always, we've got our good friend Sam Clement. Sam, say hello. Hey, John. You doing okay? I'm doing awesome. Yeah, today I'm not going to do what we normally do and ask you what you're doing for the weekend because I've already asked you that. But today I'm going to ask you specifically, what is the topic for today, Sam? Well, I figured we'd talk about this book that I think is pretty interesting. It kind of agrees with, I think, what both of us think, but it has some slightly differing opinions. Well, don't leave us in hanging suspense. Please, it's called, it's called Why Nations Fail. So oh. it's a book by an economist and a Harvard political scientist that argues the key differentiator between successful and not successful countries is their inclusive institution. So both okay. politically and economically inclusive institution. Now, would you say this is, uh, have you read the book or are reading it or know enough about it? I've, I mean, I've read parts yeah, of okay. it and I feel like I have a decent understanding of the general topics. Well, it. I do have to say that I, likewise, and likewise with Sam, and, and you do have to point out that really what they're saying here is not necessarily hard and fast, not true 100% of the time, because there will always be some exceptions to some of the things that they're talking about. Like, for instance, I don't think anyone is going to say Qatar or the United Arab Emirates are inclusive in their political structure, right? let alone Saudi Arabia, but they are still stable nation states with booming economies, yeah. correct? For now. For, for now. But they kind of the do point. talk about that. Okay. So they kind of talk. China is obviously the big one they talk about. So mm -hmm. if you bring up inclusiveness, China is probably not at the top of any of those lists. Well, they're certainly not on the top of that list. But then again, I would sit there and say that when I take a look at certain things, like the Heritage Foundation has something called the Business Freedom Index. And this is a deviation a little bit from, from the book. And maybe, maybe where we had initially thought we were going to do this. Um, but Hong Kong ranks at the very top of the Business Freedom Index, although I would argue that it is certainly not an inclusive society or an inclusive you know, country or, right. or province, what have you, because that's almost by definition because it is part of the People's Republic of China. But we can get back to that in a second. But tell me a little bit more about, about this book and, and what do people want to hear? So they argue that institutions or countries fail when they become extractive. They become the power gets concentrated in a few group, few people, and opportunities is in the hands of a few people as well. Well, that's that certainly seems to be very true. Right. I mean, if you take and a look then, at the, most of the major revolutions or rebellions, or certainly when there's a, been a turnover in the authority or leadership in a country, that certainly does seem to be the right. case. At least that's what the backstory is. Definitely. And so they consider inclusive economic institutions things that enforce property rights, create level playing field and encourage investments in new technologies in a very forward thinking. Um, they brought up a question. They said, can you imagine a 20 year old college dropout in any country being allowed to start a company that challenges whole sectors of that of that country's economy? Well, actually, I do think that there's at least one country where that type of thing happened. I do too. But there are but there are also there'll be also those of us in our society which would say that we have gotten to that point where our institutions are extractive and where the means of production and the capital in our society are controlled by very few. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing why the why the why the Democratic Party, or at least the progressive, so-called progressive, or the left-wing elements of our society have gotten so far out there. And why why things like truly, I mean, true socialism, what have you, uh, have become far more popular, far more mainstream than they ever have been at any point in my life. And they they argue that inclusive institutions, so the economically inclusive aspect of it can't be there without the politically inclusive aspect of it. It's the same thing uh, Milton Freeman used to argue that 
democracy and capitalism, it's it's hard to have one without the other in a long term and long term viewpoint of it. Well, again, I would say that there's. I mean, I'm not, obviously that's the weight of history and the bulk of examples would certainly suggest that. And the reason why I start off with that caveat, saying that this is generally a rule of thumb or what have you, there will be exceptions to the rule. I would sit there and say and ask you a question, Sam. Which is the what is the largest democracy in the world? It's gonna be the U.S. No, it's not. It's actually India. But I would certainly not say that India is some wonderful place of economic expansion where everyone enjoys a bunch of um, freedoms and what have you. Sure. Although it is certainly a a, a, a huge democracy. Uh, and conversely, you take a look at countries like the United Arab Emirates, which are not democracies, right. authoritative rule. Uh, that have seen a huge explosion in their living standards, countries like Oman and what have you. It's interesting that you would uh, that we're talking about this today because I was actually doing a little bit of reading this week. I'm going to give you, if you don't mind, actually a few uh, few paragraphs from an article that was in Foreign Policy magazine a few years ago, uh, written by Daron Assimilia. <laughs> Gosh, I practiced this beforehand. Now I'm hearing Assimilia. Assimilia. He actually wrote this book. Uh, yeah, yeah, and by James A. Robinson. Okay, here it is. Uh, most countries that fall apart, however, do not do so with a bang, but with a whimper. They fail not in an explosion of war and violence, but by being utterly unable to take advantage of their society's huge potential for growth, condemning their citizens to a lifetime of poverty. This type of slow, grinding failure leaves many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, and Latin America with living standards far, far below those in the West. What's tragic is that this failure is by design. These states collapse because they are ruled by what we call extractive economic institutions. Yeah. Exactly what we're talking about here today, which destroy incentives, discourage innovation, and sap the talent of their citizens by creating a tilted playing field and robbing them of opportunities. These institutions are not in place by mistake, but on purpose. They're there for the benefit of elites who gain much from their extraction, whether in the form of valuable minerals, forced labor, or protective monopolies, at the expense of society as a whole. Of course, such elites benefit from rigged political institutions, too, wielding their power to tilt the system for their benefit. But states built on ex exploitation inevitably fail, taking an entire corrupt system down with them and often leading to immense suffering. Each year, the failed states index charts the tragic stats of state failure. What do you think about that? It's a lot to take in. That is a lot to take in. And I want you, I'm going to challenge you right now, Sam. I'm going to challenge you. Give me the best example, what you would argue to be the best example of a failed state outside of Somalia, which is truly a failed state in Sierra Leone, but a failed state in, in the Western Hemisphere where the institutions went from inclusive, or arguably so, to extractive within the last 20 years. Saying in the Western Hemisphere? Yes. Very much. That's what I'm saying. Hmm. You want a hint? Give me a hint. Starts with a V. I was going to say Venezuela. That's right. With where we are now. I mean, it's definitely kind of completely flipped, it looks like. <laughs> flipped out is more like it. So, I mean, so, I mean, the bulk of history certainly is in the similar Gosh, I'm messing that up again. I mean, exactly what they're saying. If you take a look at various revolutions, you could argue the Cuban Revolution is on these lines. Yeah. You take a look at the Bolshevik Revolution. Take a look at really, I mean, any number of uh, rebellions, what have you. It's always been because the various institutions had been kind of stealing from society as, as a whole. 
what the what the authors would say extractive, right? Right. Where the means of production and capital are in the hands of a limited few, and that leads to disquiet, societal unrest. Yeah. It leads to revolution or just a complete. All of a sudden, there is no state anymore. Right. Kind of what you would see in a Sierra Leone or or uh, even a Liberia or something like that along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and when when and but when those countries which had the violent upheaval, most notably Russian, Cuban, what have yeah. you. What ultimately ended up happening to the means of production and capital in those countries as well? Right. Strangely enough, they went back to the hands of the very few. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how that works. Isn't that, weird? Isn't that weird how that works? So a word they bring up a lot is uh, creative destruction. So yeah. this destroying of the ability for common citizens to create, to innovate, and to further the economy. So they say countries like China monopolize power and mobilize resources at a scale that does allow for a burst of economic growth starting from a low base. Sounds like China, sounds like a lot of these countries. Um, When the government has that Mm hands-on ability with their economy, Mm -hmm. it allows for that, Mm -hmm. but they don't think it's sustainable in the long term. Well, certainly history would suggest it certainly has. Right. But this is where I start to disagree with it a little is... Yeah, they asked that question. I brought it up earlier. Can you imagine twenty-year-old college dropout kind of disrupting a whole sector type thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that question was veered towards China. Um, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe well, it could. I mean, know, it's, it seems like there is still some creativity. There is some uh, forward thinking coming out of China, even though it does have that very hands-on, uh, what they would call exclusive look towards their economy. Well, this is where this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. Well, let's not focus outwardly as much as inwardly, and focus on what's kind of going on in contemporary society. What is causing so many people in our country to think that the institutions that we have, the public institutions that we have, are now extractive in nature, and that the system is completely rigged or tilted against them? Here in the U.S. Here in the U.S. It's a good question. That is a good question. But, but I mean, what's, what would some of your insights suggest? I mean, because certainly we lack take, of historical knowledge, maybe. <laughs> well, I don't know. There have been some, some um, less than fair treatment of certain peoples in our in our in our nation's history. Yeah. But I, I would say, for uh, we're doing a, a pretty good job, all in all. But you know, I would sit there and take a look at things like you know the income inequality situation in our country, right? And more uh, inequality of wealth. And I, I don't mind telling you, there are certain. I mean, if you have money, it's easier to make even more money. Yeah. The odds of moving from different sectors of the wealth range is, when you're in the bottom sector, your odds of it moving up are very slim. I, you know, I might have to take issue with you on that, Sam. I might have to take issue with you on that because people will float in and out of income and wealth quintiles throughout their life. Uh, When I started off in the in my my first W two employment, and that's really how they they judge all these things: W two employment. My first W two employment, I was making sandwiches at the after the ninth hole of a golf course. Yeah, guess where I fell in the income quintile? Pretty low. Pretty dumb. Pretty doggone low. Matter of fact, even my first professional job, college graduate coming out of school like Wake mm-hmm. Forest, I still was no more. I was still below median. You know, but now all of a sudden, as time has progressed and my skill sets have gotten arguably better, I say arguably, of course, uh, I have moved up. Moved up in that. And and when I retire, if I do retire, if Beth lets me retire, because I think we might be at each other's throats if I were hanging out at the house all the time, <laughs> uh, I would imagine my income level will get back down as well. I guess. I guess. What I was thinking of it as is more of not just your actual W-2 income, 
as far as your whole socioeconomic well, I, status. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, in, in, that, in that situation, I'll tell you, I've, listen, you come out with nothing, it takes a very different, right. I mean, it takes a very unusual person to completely escape. That's what I mean. You know, I mean, from someone that's born in abject poverty to someone that was born in abject poverty. For someone that has had generational experiences right. of abject poverty, lack of hope, lack, lack of hope is it's really, yeah, I mean, I just said it, I said it twice, but just no, I mean, no sort of observations or experience of success. No, I think that's a horribly difficult way to go about it. Yeah. Uh, but then conversely, those people that were born with the proverbial silver spoon in their mouth, they'll find it much easier to maintain their 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 wealth unless they are completely near to wealth. Now, to that end, we have run across any number of our clients, and we we have uh, we deal with some wealthy people here at Oakworth Capital Bank, at least on the wealth management side, um, that have really more money than frankly they could spend in many lifetimes. And that enables them to take additional risk with their money because they're never going to worry about where the next meal is going to come from, whether sure. or not they're going to be able to pay the utility bill, whether or not they're going to be able to clothe their children, what have you. So they can dial up the risk a little bit. Yeah. And so you get paid for the amount of risk that you're willing to take. So here we have people that have money that all of a sudden don't have to worry about the basic necessities of life, that they're able to dial up the risk to make even more money. And so the wealth gap, wealth gap continues to explode. Sure. Just think of people who can invest some savings, have yeah. some money to save. Yeah. That's obviously going to grow versus the people who are living paycheck to paycheck, mm-hmm. no money, no accumulation of growth. Well, as How I, you, I mean, as, I, as I'll tell anyone, the key to investing isn't necessarily figuring out which individual equity buy or which stock or you know hot stock or this. Even even the biggest key to investing, not even making that call between stocks and bonds and cash and real estate. The key to investing, Sam, is actually having some money. Yeah, to invest. starting. Yes. And, and so we have way too many people in our society. I mean, vast stores of them uh, that are, as you mentioned, living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, the just the very evidence of title loan places and check cashing mm-hmm. places would suggest that there are too many people in our society not getting ahead, which is maybe the reason why all of this. You know, inwardly, I mean, focusing on, on the topic at hand, why so many people think that the system is tilted or rigged against them. And while I would say that it might seem that way, the system hasn't changed as much. It's just the circumstances, mm-hmm. perhaps. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what I'm trying to say. I mean, it's, it's a tough question to answer. There's so much that goes into it. Well, yes, I mean, it, I mean it really is. So so what what would you think, based on what you've read of this book and what we've been talking about here today, what is the likelihood that the United States of America will be able to avoid this trap? You know, it's just so hard to see any any <laughs> version of the future where that doesn't happen. It's just hard to, it's hard it to imagine. It doesn't happen or does happen? Where the U.S. is not the powerhouse. Yeah, I would, I would tell you that uh, as, as awesome as our country has been, it's really an experiment. I mean, truly is an experiment of a, 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 a multi-racial, multi-ethnic uh, society that expands an entire continent and then some, being able to live in, together in, in relative peace, comparatively speaking, truthfully. I mean, we, we take that for granted here in this country, yeah. but in relative peace compared to other societies with, with similar type of characteristics. Um, it's been an experiment, but the annals of history don't have a lot of examples where a particular form of government lasts lasts indefinitely. Matter of fact, there isn't one. Right. I mean, 
Rome's probably the biggest example, one of the most famous examples of the biggest powerhouse in the whole world just Big crumbling. You know, what's crazy about it is as long as the United States has been around, you know, what is it, 1776 mm-hmm. to 2019? Yeah. You know, 245 years? Yeah. Like um, that's not quite that. 240. Yeah. Something <laughs> like that. 243. Uh, 243. Um, you know, as long as we've been around and as long as we want to think about the future, think about how long the first the, the Roman Republic was and then the Roman Empire. Right. I mean, the Roman Empire was around to slightly before B.C. up to officially 476. Right. So even with all of our success and power and what have you, we're only half as old as the Roman Empire was, and that's not even counting the couple hundred years of the Roman yeah. Republic prior to yeah. that. That's kind of wild to it think It is about. pretty wild. And I, you might disagree, but I feel like with where society is now, things are changing at a more rapid pace than things back then were. So... Is that a timeline that we can even look at anymore? I mean, with how much evolution is going on with our laws, with evolution? our society. What are you talking about? We don't, <laughs> that's, we're in Alabama, buddy. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I interrupted. So what, what's your thought on that? But, you know, we are like the modern day Rome. Uh-huh. And we're halfway there as long as they were. But it, I, I would say it's harder to keep something like this up nowadays than it probably was back then. Well, I think you're probably right, and I would also tell you this, that as much as I personally disagree with uh, a lot of the a lot of things that the far left is saying in terms of um, what we need to do economically to make it more fair, right. uh, I would also caution those people on the right to not dismiss these people. Because if the perception is out there that our institutions have turned extractive, it doesn't matter if the reality is there because perception is. Perception becomes a reality. Becomes reality. Yeah. So the right side of the aisle needs to be paying a lot of attention to this and might even have to make some sort of compromises in order to make sure that everyone's back again on the same playing field, yeah. or at least talking with each other as opposed to past one another. And I would argue, Sam, that the best way we can do this is to do something that doesn't penalize people from getting married. I mean, people don't, certainly doesn't penalize people from getting married, whether it be their welfare benefits or right. EBT or something along those lines. Doesn't penalize people from being married, and then also doesn't penalize people from taking on additional work. Sure. And then also we need to be a little bit more realistic about whatever it is we're doing in education. We're yeah. spending way too much money and getting way too too few results because as a result we have too many people coming coming up in our society that really have the have the the cards stacked against yeah. them. Um, you know, they've, they've come from broken homes. They come from, you know, poor education system. And the chances of them breaking out of that wealth wealth desert right, or that huge wealth gap are almost zero. Right. Well, to echo Milton Freeman again, I think you can tell I'm a big fan of his. But, <laughs> you know, we need to focus more or focus less on the intent of the law and focus on the outcomes of it more. Because there's so many things that we've talked about before, whether it be minimum wage, mm-hmm. certain taxes, all kinds of things that sound awesome. But the actual effect of it, the actual outcome of it is goes completely against what these people want as the end goal. I mean, you, we, we're seeing restaurants in New York starting to fire people more because of the new minimum wage laws. I mean, so it's hurting the people that need it the most. 
Without a doubt. And I I hear you, and you and I aren't far apart on economics. I will tell you, though, where we need to get back on the same page is actually listening to one another. And I think we do a very poor job of that in Washington, and maybe even just in our society as a whole, listening to one another, because, frankly, we all want the same thing. Right. It's just how we're going to go about getting there. And so that more than anything else i think if if you have a democracy you have to actually listen to people right in order to get away from you know the perception of that the public institutions are extractive as opposed to inclusive right because i'd argue i'd argue they're inclusive but it doesn't matter if i believe that everyone has to believe that's yeah, a self-fulfilling i mean if people don't think they're inclusive they'll become not inclusive and then all of a sudden you have a failed stand there you do there you have it well gang that's all we have for today a little bit kind of a weighty topic here today, but Sam thought it would be a good one. I think it's a good one, too, and I think we really need to pay attention to this. What can we do to get all back on the same page, to start talking with one another and listening with one another as opposed to shouting past one another? We both need both sides, no matter where you are on the political spectrum. We all need to work on our messages a little bit better. So with that, thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you all. So if you have any questions or comments, please let us know. You can send us an email to tradingperspectives at oakworthcapital.com, or you can leave us a review on the podcast outlet of your choice. If you like what you heard today, by all means, please tell your friends, neighbors, loved ones about the good stuff you heard here. If you didn't like it, by all means, tell those people that you you don't like at all about the bad stuff. In any event, just get on on out there and, and tell people about it. If you're interested in hearing more of what we have to say or how we think, uh, by all means, go and check out our blog, Common Sense, amongst other good things there on our website under uh, at oakworthcapital.com underneath the Thought Leadership tab. With that, I'm kind of out of words here today. That's so all I got. Yourself. Guys, y'all take care. <laughs>